0: with me? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, I ask this morning that the words of my mouth meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Welcome back to Broken Heroes. We are talking each and every week about a different quote-unquote hero of the Christian faith. We're looking at people like Abraham and David and Moses, women like Naomi and Rebecca. And what we are discovering is that these heroes of the faith were flesh and blood like us. They weren't superhuman with some kind of supernatural ability to overcome sin. That instead, they, they, they wrestled, they struggled with different issues, and each week we're taking a look at one of these. The biographies of these people in the Bible that, it, that is painted shows that, that they were very much like us. And I don't know about you, but I find that super encouraging, that God can use me in spite of my sin, in spite of my brokenness, in spite of my past, in spite of everything. God's grace is greater, Amen. So today we're talking about Eve's unbelief. You probably know that Eve was the very first woman ever created. In the creation account, Genesis 2 and 3, if you have your Bibles, that's where we're going to be camping out today is, is reading a few passages from that because that talks about what happened when God created the earth. But, but as God was doing this, He was going through creation, and at the end of this day, there's this pronouncement that gets made. And At the end of multiple days, what, what does God say? Is and God saw that it was good. Yes. Again and again, we hear this pronouncement. Everything was good. Nothing was amiss. But then we get to this one part of the story where he says something was not good. Do you remember what this was? It was not good for the man to be alone, right? So Adam's there in the garden with his animals. Sounds pretty great to me, actually. Um But he's there, and there's no suitable helper that can be found for him. So so what does God do? He says, Genesis 2:18, I will make a helper fit for him. So he creates this woman and he joins her to Adam in marriage. He actually puts Adam to sleep when he does this. I'm picturing this scene in my mind. Can you imagine Adam who has known nothing but but bears and, and deer and whales and Moose and all, you know, all these animals. He opens his eyes. There's this woman there. Like, wow, nice job, God. Good work. Five out of five stars. So, Adam and this woman, at this point in the story, she's not called Eve. She's just called Isha. The, The Hebrew word for man is Ish. So, Isha is woman, comes from man because Eve was created out of the rib of Adam. Adam and Eve live in perfect security and harmony with God and with one another and with creation and with themselves. But then we hit Genesis 3 and something goes wrong, something massively wrong. It shakes the foundations of all the world to this very day. Listen how the story goes. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to start with verse 1 and do a little bit of pausing and kind of explaining along the way. But it starts out like this. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, pause right there. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? What's going on there? Already, there's deception Because the truth is God never said you can't eat from any of these trees. What he said was you can eat from any of these trees except for this one tree, right? The the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what's going on here? Is Satan just ignorant? Uh, Did he forget what God said and he just is misquoting him here or, or something? Well, no, Satan is too crafty for that he's being deliberate, he's trying to shift Eve's mindset away from all of the good things that God did give to the one thing that he did not give. He's emphasizing the prohibition, what she can't do rather than the abundance of things that God said she can do. Here's her response to him in verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden." This is good, right? Like Satan had said, did God really say that you can't eat from any of the trees? And she's correcting him. No, God said we can eat from the trees of the garden. So this is true. This is is good. But then she continues. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Also true. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Pause again. That last part is not true, so this whole thing that she said was just a partial truth. You may have picked up on this pattern within the first few verses of chapter 3. God is being misquoted an awful lot, saying, being made out to have said things that He never actually said Eve is is putting words in God's mouth that he didn't say. She's adding prohibitions that he never gave. Picking up in verse 4, and I'll read a number of verses now. But the serpent said to the woman, "'You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil.'" So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And what happens after this? You remember how the story goes. They're ashamed. They hide, right? God comes walking through the garden in in the cool of the day, and he's, He's calling out. He's looking for them. And they say, we were afraid, so we hid. And eventually what happens is God pronounces this whole series of curses on them. You can read these curses in verses 14 through 19, but what I want to focus on is what happens next. Right after this list of curses, that's when Eve actually gets her name. Here's verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. You can also translate this as the mother of all life. And the name Eve is just kind of our best attempt in our Americanese, like to, to sort of make a word that sounds a little bit like the original Uh, But it's not correct. In in Hebrew, it would have been more along the lines of Hawa. Hawa. Can you say that with me? Hawa. So this is Eve. Actually, her name would have been closer to that. But what's going on here? Why is this naming thing so important? Because this happens a lot in Scripture. People's names get changed. And whenever that happens, it's usually something pretty significant. Well, it's important for this reason. Despite her great sin, and Adam's sin, by the way, he's not off the hook here at all. We're going to talk about Adam's sin of blame shifting later on in this, this series. Uh, it's interesting in this passage, it doesn't really show up in the English, but when the serpent is addressing Eve and he, and he says the word you, it's plural. Why does that matter? While that probably means that the serpent is talking not just to Eve in this moment, but Adam is right there by her side, silent, not saying anything, failing miserably as a husband to protect his wife the way he should. So Adam's not off the hook either, and we'll talk more about that at a different time, but despite her great sin, God used Eve in a powerful way. Despite the death and curses that resulted from her thoughts and actions. God gives her the name Mother of Life, which would have, I mean, that, that, that would have just been amazing, not because her actions were virtuous, but because God was gracious. Now listen to what happens in the very next verse. Verse 21. And the Lord God made Adam made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Why is this significant? Well, ultimately, God did not immediately execute the sentence of certain death that He seemed to be threatening. Did you notice that? Instead, He was gracious and merciful to Adam and Eve. They deserved to die on the spot. But He didn't annihilate them. Yet in order for this to happen... Blood had to be shed. In this case, it was the blood of animals. He clothed them in the skin of animals. When we get to the New Testament, we see the fuller representation of this in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ and His blood has to be shed for the remission of our sins. And Eve gets the honor of being at the very top of Jesus' family tree. Because right smack in the midst of this list of curses, there's this gospel bombshell. You know what it is. Many of you know what this is. Genesis 3.15. This is God speaking to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity, enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What is he prophesying here? Talking about Jesus at the cross, the seed of Eve would crush the head of Satan once and for all. Eve, this broken, rebellious, disobedient person, is used by God in a mighty way despite her failure. The power of God shines all the more clearly through the cracks of a sinner saved by grace. But let's go a little bit deeper here. Let's ask the question, what was Eve's sin? Seems obvious, right? She took the fruit, she ate it, she disobeyed, she was tempted and she failed, right? True. Uh, But why is, is the question we have to ask. There's always a why. All of our actions are rooted in a particular belief so what did she believe that caused her to act in this particular way? See, it's never just about our external actions. It's about our hearts that cause the actions and words and thoughts in the first place. So what's going on in her heart? Ultimately, Eve's sin was one of unbelief. She disbelieved God's word and trusted another word, Instead, the word of the serpent, right? God had given her his word. He, he had instructed her on how to live, how to flourish in the garden, what her job was. Same with, with Adam. But instead, they believed the words of the serpent. In his podcast, 40 Minutes in the New Testament, Chad Bird, he makes a crucial point that in the Garden of Eden, no one is actually listening to God. (laughs) You notice this? Like Eve listens to the serpent, Adam listens to Eve, who's listening to God? Nobody. Like his word has just gone to the wayside. Chad says, the foundation, I think this is really important, he says, the foundation of all temptation is in one way or another to depart from the word of God. See, Satan tempts Eve to believe instead that there is happiness and security apart from the word of God, apart from what God actually says. She thought she could trust her own voice and the voice of the serpent rather than the voice of God. She she wanted to try to secure her own well-being, to be her own God, independent of her creator. She wanted to write her own story, as some might say today. But as Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says, human autonomy leads to alienation and death for self and for others. And he's right. As a consequence of her sin, death entered the world. See, when we stray from God's Word, when we listen to other voices around us and obey them, and the voices within us, that's what happens. The wages of sin is death. Now, sometimes as Christians, We use the word believers to describe ourselves, and rightly so. In one sense, this is very true. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. The Bible is abundantly clear on that. In another sense, though, the fact that we still sin indicates that we struggle to believe and trust God like we should. See, all sin stems from unbelief. All sin starts with unbelief. What do I mean by that? Well, let's take an example. Say someone covets, for example. The word covet is not one we use a lot in daily language, but it just means to to want something that's not yours in a greedy kind of way, right? We always want more. We want what our neighbor has. We want the, the next level iPhone. We want the next, you know, generation, whatever it is. We want More and more. So, when this happens, when someone covets, let's ask the question where does that come from? Ultimately, it comes from a distrust in God because if we fully believed God and the promise in His Word that we are secure in Christ Jesus, we wouldn't feel the need to chase after all this other stuff. And I'm not just talking about donkeys and oxen here, right? Or take another sin. Say someone takes the life of someone else. Breaking of the fifth commandment, right? You shall not murder. Now, now maybe this happens actually, physically as a crime. This tragic thing happens. We see this happen. Or maybe it, it's in our thoughts, words. Where does that come from, though? Well, when we decide to kill, we take the life of another person into our own hands, which means we are disbelieving the truth that God is actually the author of all life and that His justice and vengeance are sufficient. Justice or vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Do you see what I'm getting at here? Unbelief in God's Word is is the the, the taproot from which all other sins flow? When we depart from God's word, the result is inevitably death and destruction. We cave into unbelief when we, like Eve, believe the lie that God is holding out on us. When we believe the lie that God is holding out on us, that's when we cave in to unbelief, that he's not going to give us what's best, that he's not truly loving and gracious and forgiving and sufficient. See, when I believe that lie, then I chase after all of the false gods that promise love and affirmation and peace and security and happiness, right? I believe the promises of my own heart over the promises of God's word. You see, sin isn't sin just because God happens to, to hate it. Sin isn't sin just because it's disobedience to an arbitrary set of rules. Sin is sin because it is bondage to believing and living a lie. So what's God's solution to the sin problem? What's His answer to the unbelief that plagues our hearts? How does he overcome that? Does he tell us to believe more? Does he tell us to to buck up and, and try a little harder? You know, just have more faith. Not really. It's not the way that I'm reading this story. In fact, he doesn't even give Adam and Eve a second chance. He doesn't say, all right, you know what you did wrong, right? Now, here are 10 steps to make sure that that doesn't happen again. All right, let's take it from the top, start over. He doesn't do that, does he? Adam and Eve are ejected from the garden, barred from the tree of life forever. See, the consequences of sin are much too drastic. Our situation is way too dire for us to save ourselves. God didn't give us a second chance, but He did something better. He gave us a second Adam. Paul puts it like this in Romans 5, For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, right, Adam's sin in the garden, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men, right? Jesus' death and resurrection. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. How are we made righteous? by the one man's obedience. And who is that one man? Jesus Christ. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, apart from our own works. Eve was called the mother of all life because Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. The seed of Eve crushed the head of the snake. Jesus, the very word of God, destroyed Satan, silencing his lying tongue forever. We see this all over the New Testament. Earlier in our service, Luke read a passage about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness where he goes toe-to-toe with Satan and defeats him. Throughout the gospel, Jesus is preaching, he's healing, he's performing exorcisms, right? Like exercising these demons that are a part of Satan's kingdom, defeating him. I saw Satan fall like lightning, Jesus says, and ultimately at the cross, he defeats sin, he defeats death and breaks the bonds of sin, excuse me, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, have eternal life. Jesus lived, died, and rose again to save you from your disbelieving heart. When you are faithless, He is faithful. When you fail, He succeeds. By the power of the Holy Spirit, He creates and strengthens faith in our hearts. He gives us the power to believe the gospel and then to go out and live like it's actually true. See, God is not holding out on you. God has given everything for you. He didn't withhold even a drop of His own blood, not His own Son. He left heaven behind to rescue you, to adopt you, to call you His beloved Son and Daughter. Friends, your well-being is secure and safe in the nail-scarred hands of the God who sacrificed Himself Purchase your pardon. May you find yourself believing and trusting in that glorious truth this morning. Join us next week as we continue our Broken Heroes series talking about Caleb, who was one of the successors of Moses and the peer pressure that he experienced as he was entering the land of Canaan and the way that God used him as a man of integrity to lead the Israelites into the promised land. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we confess that our hearts don't always... Hey friends, Pastor Luke here. Thanks so much for tuning in. I trust that you've been blessed by our message from God's word today. Hey, we'd love to connect with you more. If you have comments or questions, you can email me directly at pastorchellog at gmail.com. That's Pastor K-J-O-L-H-A-U-G at gmail.com. As we wrap up our time together today, please receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen.